Hi, welcome to Historical Fantasy. I'm Guinevere Lee. And I am Noel Sayer. And today we are going to talk about samurai. So unlike other topics that we've talked about, samurai have, dare I say, become mythologized. They have a place in popular culture and they also have a place in history. And I think there are two different versions of samurai that people have in their minds. Yeah, I am agree with you. In general, like the idea that the people have about the samurai, that is the idea that they had it before, was like a, the idea of the late Edo period. Yeah, definitely. Will the samurai like a, was like a long history, like a, in the history of Japan, the Bushido, the code of Bushido appeared only in the century 18. Yeah, that's a very recent invention. <laughs> <laughs> Most samurai were not great human beings. I might be generalizing a little bit. Well, here, like but... the samurais was a samurai because born in the family of the samurais. Yeah, that's one thing I did want to talk about because... I think most people have this idea in their mind that anyone could become a samurai. It's like becoming a samurai was becoming a warrior, except that's not the case. Samurai were a specific social class. Especially after, like, uh, during the Edo period, like, uh, samurai become like a close class that you cannot exist if you don't born, like, in the samurai family. Yeah, in the beginning, samurai, it just meant a servant of the, well, whatever rich family was employing them. And actually, most samurai were women. (laughs) Because, you know, most of them were either the courtesans or the people working in the... In fact, like, uh, (laughs) it is like the same number of samurai, like a man than woman, but happened in the Edo period. Women that born in the samurai family, they have the woman role. Yeah, they stayed in the household, but they were still samurai. Yeah, they was like, it is like a lower level of novelty. Yeah, so the idea that most people have of samurai, I think, probably comes from film. Yeah, probably it's like a, when like a, the idea of like a, the Bushido period, when be, the samurai become idealized, paladin of the virtues. That is basically the Bushido code is about. But do you must to think that the Bushido code appear when the samurai as a warrior have not meaning, because during the Edo period is a period of, of like a almost completely full, like a peace around Japan. Yes. So the warriors, unless like a minor, like a rebels, don't have like a, a proper for itself. So the most of the samurais will become reconverted in administrators, philosophers. And also because in the Edo era, they didn't really have any big wars to fight. They spent a lot more time just practicing amongst themselves and really honing the art of being a warrior and being a samurai. Probably most famously is uh, Musashi Miyamoto, who wrote The Five Rings. Mm-hmm. And it's just him explaining his way of the samurai and really holding it up on a pedestal and just saying, like, this is something you can dedicate your life to. So it's kind of ironic that the only reason why they had so much time to dedicate themselves into turning samurai into an art was because they were living in this peaceful time and really had no need for samurai. No, in fact, in back in days, the samurais appear during the wars about the Mishi, the one that we talked about in the last yeah. podcast. Yeah, like when the shogun was essentially created. And also with the wars with the <laughs> Korean kingdoms. 
they start to realize like the cavalry tactics are like very superiors. Mm -hmm. So we start to create permanent corps of warriors that it is dedicated and specialized in like archery, cavalry, and like the Kurdish world. Yeah, I think they do have a lot of similarities with European knights. It was that yes. like it was a class of people they dedicated themselves to being a warrior and they always served somebody else. But in that time they they didn't have a close class. Everybody can become right. like a samurai. Right. But happened that in the century nine they have a lot of civil wars but it was provocated a famine and also plague. So, like, the emperor should delegate a lot of power in the local governments. Mm -hmm. And their, governor, their governors... The daimyos? Then, like, they evolved in the daimyos. But okay, like, so before they were known as daimyos. Yes, but they, they, they authorize them to have, like, their own forces. Right. In order to suppress the rebellions of the poor, like, famine farmers. Or those fighting monks that were always causing trouble. And with the pace of the centuries, these permanent armies and the daimyos become more and more powerful. And they become head of the powerful fam families that mm -hmm. during all of the history of Japan accumulate that much power. So I have a question for you that's a bit less about the history, but your own personal experience. Mm -hmm. Do you remember like, the first time you were introduced to samurai? I guess that probably in movies. Yeah. Especially in the old movies, they, they star, for example, the Kurosawa's movies. Yeah. It is... I, I like, like uh, the Kurosawa's movies because... They don't ideally say the samurai like in the most of the movies. They also show the miseries of the samurais. Because the reality is the samurai, it is a kind of nobler title. But not always imply that you have lands or wealth. So it means that you can be a samurai and poor. Mm. And in some cases, like you be kind of obligated to make something that not very match with the, like, the Bushido code. For example, it is some criminals, some runnings, that they yeah. born in the in a samurai family. Yeah, you but, essentially become a hired sword. Yeah. And definitely Akira Kurosawa showed that in pretty much all of his movies. Yes. That's what they were about. Uh, for I example, mean, Seven in, Samurais. Yeah, in the Seven Samurai, do you see all of the spectra? They have the John Samurai, that is from like a wealth, uh, like a family. Mm -hmm. They have the old one, that is a kind of like idealistic. Mm -hmm. And then they have a couple of them that is not very much like a, should like a own the title of Samurai. Yeah. No, it, it definitely humanizes them. But I think it, that... That movie and other Kurosawa films does still romanticize yes. the samurai. Especially, you know, you have the main character of Seven Samurai. He's the one who believes that there's, like, that you should comport yourself with honor. That, you know, it's important to protect these people. And that idea <laughs> is something that is always packaged alongside what people consider to be a samurai. When it, I mean, the reality is that samurai do kind of still exist today yes. because the families just converted themselves into the Yakuza. So, <laughs> you know, obviously... Well, not all of them. <laughs> not all of them, not all of them. But that is where the Yakuza yes. came from, I, 
And if I like the organization of the Yakuza clans, that they have a pyramidal structure, is exactly like the feudal-like structure of the samurais. One, one thing that I like it about the history of the samurais is just in the century 15, when like the samurais start to be established like an army, they want to differentiate it from the shigarus, that is the leaves. Leaves? When do you like arise an army of like farmers? Just in time of war, that you give an arm like weapon to the farmers, go to the... Yeah, a conscripted army. So for differentiate the samurai from like the, like the farmers that make the 90% of the, the army, like in that time, they banned the position of a sword for anybody that is not a samurai. So they can still have weapons, but not a sword. Because the sword become like the symbol of the samurais, especially the daishi, that is the katana and the wakizashi. Yeah. So in order to reinforce the status and the position of the samurais, they just like the ban the position of the swords to anybody that is not a, an actual samurai. So we talked about the Battle of Sekigahara a lot mm-hmm. in episode two, and you brought up the point that it was the largest battle in the history yes. of Japan, like fought on Japanese soil. Uh, what was it, 200,000? Yes, 200,000. So do you know what percentage of that was actually samurai and what was just a conscripted army of farmers? I mean, well, I, I didn't consult that data, but I will say that less than 10% of the soldiers was actual samurais. That's funny, because especially that movie that we watched about it, was it was a really good movie and it actually took the point of view of the guy who lost the battle of Sekigahara but in those battle scenes every single person was a samurai like (laughs) everyone I mean maybe not everybody had a sword but everyone had the like traditional samurai armor they all had you know traditional samurai weapons well of course (laughs) the people that is around the main characters will be will be samurais you know, that movie came out last year, and it's still showing this, like, idealized version of the yeah. samurai. And this idea that, like, every fighting person was a samurai, which is not true. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is funny. Yeah, it's very bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think this is or one myth that's not going to be able to really... But if you think about, like, the medieval European, like, movies, it's totally the same. They have a disproportionate quantity of knights. Yeah. When also the knights would be, I think, it's far less than ten percent right. of like the armies. The rest they are just farmers with like a sword, with like um. The spears. And yeah, will be like a farmers with a spear, but also you see a, a medieval movie and appear knights everywhere. Knights everywhere. Yes. It depends on the movie. If you watch yeah. something like Braveheart you definitely see that there's a lot more... Because the whole point of Braveheart is like a a rebellion. (laughs) Yeah, I guess you're right about that. (laughs) But look like everybody's in a a horse with like a full plate armor. It's absolutely not true. (laughs) So how do you feel about the movie The Last Samurai? Well... I have very mixed feelings about this movie. I'm curious what you think. Well, I think it's a good action movie. <laughs> how do you feel it? it uh, how do you feel it represented the reality of that time? I think they represent very good the non-samurai part. 
Right. <laughs> anything that, ha- that <coughs> any scene where there was no Ken Watanabe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like uh, the rest will like uh, appear like uh, the modernization during Meiji. I think it yeah. is very accurate and very good represent. And the part of the samurai <laughs> is a little bit uh, idealized. Oh, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I love how they have Ken Watanabe in like a garden composing poems before battle, and it's yes. just like. <sighs> Okay. <laughs> and in addition, appear in the kind of medium small village, but yeah. then you put like a like a massive temples that you mm-hmm. only be able to construct with like a, a, a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I would like to know the geography of where they were throughout most of that movie. <laughs> I mean, like at the like in the in the history, the last samurai was in like a Shizuoka in Kyushu. Now, see, I heard it was in Hokkaido, so I I think that there well, is more than one well, person I, claiming I, to be the last samurai. Oh yeah, or that history. Uh, and also in in Aichi, they they also like a clam that they have out there, and another <laughs> last samurai. There's a few last samurais. <laughs> I don't know which is the last last, yeah. but the last big. Uh, like a, a f- f- focus of rebellion yeah. was in like a Shizuoka in, the, in, in Kyushu. In Hokkaido. Well, they, were in, they were in that fortress, the name of which I'm forgetting right now, but it's shaped like a five pointed star. Yeah, I know that. They basically took over that fortress and they were like, this is our last stand as the samurai. And it didn't go well for them. Well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> but I don't know, because when I went to Hokkaido, that was, you know, that was the big tourist attraction was to go visit that fortress in Hakodate. Uh, and, and also when we went to like uh, Fukushima, they also have also like, uh, they say that is the last last, that is a group of 10, that oh. when like uh, the daimyo surrender, they refuse to surrender themselves. So they go to like uh, the top of a uh, mountain and they just commit seppuku. Oh. Man, yeah, <laughs> and well, of course, it's a big monument. In yeah, like, you yeah. know, it's, it's hard to know. Like, uh, a lot of people climb, like, uh, who is the last one? So, that is convenient for the movie be- well, yeah. because they don't need to be attached to like a single <laughs> <I> mean, one. <laughs> I think one thing we can all agree on is that Tom Cruise was not the no. last samurai, <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely a Japanese person, whoever it was. And I guess it, there it, are some people who still claim to be samurai because they're still descended from the samurai families. I, I also like a hear a, like a history about like a one British man that also joined the samurais during like the rebellion. Oh. I I didn't think that have by far like a, <laughs> that role, but. It is like a, the history of a couple of foreigners. This is British Tom Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> Hugh Grant. Oh, yeah, Hugh Grant. <laughs> becoming his, Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, no. I would die if they made that movie. <laughs> Coming this fall, Hugh Grant is the last samurai. <laughs> Do you have a favorite samurai movie? I just want to talk about samurai movies now. Mm. <laughs> I think it's probably like a, well, I, I say like, like, like a Kurosawa. I think it's probably Rashomon. Rashomon? Was my favorite. But I, I really like enjoy like a lot of his movie in general. Yeah, I like the Osagi Yojimbo movies. 
Hidden Fortress is also like very good. Oh, Hidden Fortress, of course, is a classic. Without yes. Hidden Fortress, there'd be no Star Wars. Yes, it's true. <laughs> I mean, what is a Jedi Knight if not a samurai? Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I think we're going to wrap it up for this episode. Yes. So, we haven't mentioned this episode yet, but just to remind everyone, this is a companion podcast to the story, Lead on the Samurai, which you can check out on chanillo.com. Please. <laughs> <laughs> and although this episode is actually coming out the day after Word on the Street, we're actually doing mm. Word on the Street this weekend, so we're busy preparing all the displays and stuff for that. And I hope that I can be busy at before you hear this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I hope everything goes smoothly. And if you were there, it was great speaking to you. Mm-hmm. The next episode of this podcast is going to be a little different. We're not going to be talking about Japanese history. We are going to be talking about some Bronze Age history. So t- stay tuned for that. <laughs> I will. Itadakimasu. You don't question why you're running through a forest of bamboo. You don't give yourself time to think. You run. You scream. You cry. You run and run and run. And you hope the man chasing you with a bow and arrow doesn't kill you. Lita and the Samurai is a tale of a modern girl in ancient Japan. Only available on Chanillo.com. That's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. Lita, a young woman who moved to Japan to escape her abusive family, is slowly adjusting to her new life. She's learning Japanese, making friends, and enjoying the summer festivals. On the day of the famous Tanabata festival, she finds a small shrine. But when she steps out of the shrine, she steps into Edo-era Japan. Trapped 400 years in Japan's past, what follows is half fantasy, half historical fiction. Is her coming here an accident? Or does it have something to do with the sudden appearance of European ships off the coast? Lita must discover how she ended up in this situation and how she can get back home, or if she even wants to go back. Lita and the Samurai updates bi-weekly on Mondays. You can read the first chapter for free on chanillo.com. Once again, that's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. We were the first, and we will be the last. From Morgan James Fiction comes the exciting new historical fantasy Orope, the White Snake, by Guinevere Lee. The whispers of the gods have seen the vision, the gods destroying the world in a flood because the old ways have been corrupted and forgotten. Three are chosen, Tersh, Kareth, and Shadi, to go out and warn the world. The gods must be appeased. In Orope, the White Snake, Tersh must leave her children and travel to Matawe, the kingdom in the mountains. She also must care for Kareth, and keep him out of trouble. Kareth, told since birth that he is destined for greatness, has been expecting this moment. Certain that he is ready, he quickly discovers that his confidence and curiosity have a tendency to lead him into dangerous situations. Shadi finds himself traveling alone to find the people of the jungle, the Petsahalpa. The jungle seems like a paradise until he discovers the darker rituals practiced within. Samaki is a merchant who returns to Mahat to find his home destroyed, his father dead, and no one to buy his expensive cargo. With his first mate, Tuhark, 
The merchant struggles to move forward after his entire world has been upended. The stories of these four travelers intersect and entwine with each other as they move towards their destinations. Guided by visions, the Whispers must use their wits to survive in these strange new lands that would rather use them as political pawns than listen to their warnings. Available in paperback, digital, and audio wherever books are sold. To learn more about Guinevere Lee and her writing, visit GuinevereLee.com. G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R-E-L-E-E dot com. And thank you for listening. Music provided by Bensound.com.